This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers brought to you by the Fur Bearers. Beavers are incredible animals who have complex social lives, engineer essential ecosystems, and can help us develop climate resilience. In Canada, beavers were nearly wiped out by fur trappers, but their populations slowly returned, though not to their pre-colonization levels. But in Britain, European beavers haven't had the opportunity to return to the landscape, and that's what the Beaver Trust wants to change. A registered charity in England and Wales, Beaver Trust is seeking to restore beavers to their former range in hopes of building climate-resilient landscapes and restoring freshwater habitats. Their multi-tiered strategy includes translocation of beavers into landscapes and implementation of coexistence measures, communicating and educating on the successes of the programs, and to influence government policy to support ecological goals. Dr. Roisin Campbell-Palmer, head of Restoration for Beaver Trust, joins Defender Radio to share why returning beavers to Britain matters, what tools and strategies are used to prevent or mitigate negative encounters, and how communication ends up playing a significant role in this scientific journey. Let's get started. I think the the sensical place to start, which is now a word, is uh, the natural history of beavers uh, in uh, UK and Ireland or Western Europe kind of as a whole, because I think the story of beavers there is a bit different than the story of beavers in North America. Well, yeah, I mean, they're two different species for a start, as as you know, but I guess the confusion comes, they look probably identical. I mean, if you saw them next to each other, I think uh, I would say your ones <laughs> have uh, like a more paddle shaped tail. Uh, the Eurasian has more kind of straight edges, but you'd be hard pushed if you saw one from a distance to know what species it was. They do have incredibly similar behavior and yeah, general ecology. So, uh, but we know that they don't interbreed. So that's why we're kind of very keen that we are only bringing and moving Eurasian back. Um, in some parts of the kind of history going back in beaver restoration, the North American beaver has made it over to Europe mm-hmm. and now exists in kind of tens of thousands numbers, you know, decent numbers in parts of Finland and, and Russia. So we're obviously very keen that we're they're dealing with the right species. Yeah. And that again goes back a bit to the history where you know, in time, there was much more uh, North American beavers left than the Eurasian. So it went down to nearly, well, we're guessing about a thousand individuals. So this species was almost completely lost. And when uh, certain countries, you know, again, like the northern Scandinavian countries and Russia wanted to bring back beavers, you know, based on the fur trade, really, um, you know, it was easier to go to North America and get beavers uh, there. So that's why it's a bit of a checkered history. But, you know, the restoration these days really is focusing on this species. Um, and really, as you mentioned, it's natural history and I guess all the benefits it can bring. It mm. really is an animal that can change landscapes. And I think people are still constantly surprised uh, at what beavers can do in, in such a little amount of time. Um, so if if we're prepared to leave, live with these act- uh, their activities, we are really seeing benefits in terms of things like water quality improvements, storing more water on the land, um, you know, really uh, renaturalizing rivers, basically. Um, probably like yourselves, we've got a history of, you know, straightening all our rivers, making them um, devoid of, of life yeah. and wildlife. And here's a species that comes back and, and does it. So from a natural history point of view, I guess they're not totally dissimilar. 
Um, but yeah, their history and their kind of restoration processes is different. I think a lot more remained in America, even though it was, it was quite patchy, their distribution. But again, both species have been through huge, um, maybe like extermination, you could call it, um, based on, on the fur trade. And I guess once the Europeans had pretty much decimated the Eurasian beaver, um, yeah, we went over to North America and Canada and started on those populations. Yep, and it had a, a very serious impact. I was just looking um, to try and find the, the numbers. I couldn't find the exact numbers. I do know that the, the large or the less conservative population uh, estimates were in the hundreds of millions uh, oh, at yeah. the time of colonization. And uh, one anecdote I just came across around Rupert's Bay, they spent, they looked over 25,000 square kilometers around Rupert's Bay at one point in the 18th century and oh. found four beavers they could pelt, wow. uh, yeah. which is just, I mean, that entire habitat is beaver. Like that, that's, yeah. if you look at it yeah. from an evolutionary point of view, that's, that's where they belong. They created all yeah. of that. So it's, it's quite stark. Um, and it was yeah, all for back hats. in the day. Yeah, it would have looked, I mean, I guess now to us, you know, what North America and Canada would have been like before that is probably unrecognizable. And, you know, yeah. Europe's going back obviously a few centuries before that, you know, just the expanse of wetlands and, you know, all those ecosystems that are associated with it. You know, as humans, we've been very good at, at draining that all out and using that land largely for agriculture um, and development. And I, I think if we transported ourselves, you know, 500 years back, Europe especially would look to very different place absolutely and yeah this this animal has created that kind of landscape so when we put it back in i guess people are um worried and concerned that okay we lost beavers here we think in in britain about 400 years ago so that's that's a big gap in time and yeah. uh, you know it's outside the living memory of of any of us well and i think a, an interesting comparison and and i apologize this just popped into my head and i have no idea I, I apologize. I don't know if you have any uh, uh, experience with Canada geese in terms of um, in population changes, because they're a fascinating example of that, where the geese were effectively wiped out through hunting and various other means. And then sometime later, people tried bringing them back as a farmed animal and they got released. Mm. But the landscape mm. had changed so drastically that Canada geese just went, oh, cool. You, it, it, We effectively built a city of condos around every waterfront in Ontario yeah. for Canada geese by getting rid of all the riparian uh, uh, plant life and stuff mm. like that, that would keep geese from wanting to be on water. And now municipalities are starting to change all of their ponds and rivers and streams to put tall grasses and reeds and slow shrub and all of that back along that riparian bank um, because then the geese don't want to be there. It's that simple. Right. They they want to be somewhere with low grass where they can easily get in and out of the water. If you get Easy rid life. of yeah, you get rid of that low grass, they don't hang out as much, and then you don't have to deal with the uh, excessive amounts of poop and the really <laughs> weird fear a lot of people have of Canada geese. Um, <laughs> I suppose if you're small, they can be aggressive. Oh, they, no, they're aggressive no matter <laughs> yeah, how big you island. are. Yeah, being chased by a goose. Yeah, oh, yeah. all of us have. I got bit by a goose as a kid. <laughs> Um, oh, wow. at a restaurant, my dad told me to, this, I was five. It's one of my earliest memories. He told me to throw the lemon from my drink to the goose. Oh, um, uh -huh. and it didn't come I off my, my finger. Like <laughs> no, it didn't come off my finger. So the goose just came over and took it off my finger. Um, and as a five-year-old, that was Godzilla just took my hand, dad. Why are you laughing? Uh, <laughs> 
for those who don't know, Canada geese have no teeth, so it was not exactly that big of a deal. But they can be exceptionally aggressive in their behavior. It's quite funny, considering that they're geese. Um, but anyway, back to beavers. We were talking just now about riparian landscapes, so the uh, uh, wetlands, bogs, any space around a body of water. And you, you made the the really important point that so much of what had been beaver habitat has been replaced by agriculture. And that is a significant point of conflict now uh, in yeah. Canada and yeah. I imagine in the UK and Ireland as well. Um, what kind of work? So I, I understand that you didn't just go out and drop a bunch of beavers on the the sidelines and say, go team, go. Um, <laughs> in the preparation for bringing the beavers back, I imagine there had to be a great amount of stakeholder conversation, specifically Absolutely. around some of that agriculture, fears of property damage uh, and changing land use effectively, which is mm -hmm. what beavers are great at. How did your team approach that uh, that aspect of that? consultation and making it inclusive yeah and and i would say this is still ongoing uh, even though we have beavers back so i guess the beaver story in britain um especially in scotland i mean it started a few decades ago so you know there's been a lot of people for i guess a long time really interested and keen on bringing this species back so it's been a big journey um it's been controversial in times because as you can see we're an island and mm -hmm. um, so we're not like other parts of Europe um, that were actively restoring beavers you know a few decades before us and um, some of those were official some of those are unofficial and of course as beavers expand they were they were doing the work themselves and moving into countries so Britain really was the kind of last so it's the kind of western extent um, off the range but it was really one of the last uh, what places to really seriously consider bringing beavers back. And I think because we have an island men mentality, you know, if we want to see species, lost species back, we're going to have to go and intervene. And as soon as you kind of approach that, you know, oh, you know, there's debates on both sides. Is it the right thing to do? Is the landscape still here? Uh, as I mentioned, 400 years is a long time. So there was lots of debates about, well, do they even have the habitat anymore? And would it be the right thing to do? Um, so, yeah, it's been a long journey. Um, there was various, I guess, key stages that kind of prompted more action. So when the European directive uh, to encourage member states to just investigate the feasibility of bringing animals, lost species back, of which the beaver was one, it give emphasis um, for the different countries. So Scotland, Wales uh, and England um, did their own feasibility studies. Uh, now, a lot of that was based on ecology. And, you know, where would you source beavers from looking at things like disease risk, all this kind of stuff. But a big, big part of that was the social aspect. Um, so over the years, it's taken lots of different forms. So it's, you know, been from like votes on a national scale mm -hmm. to, um, you know, independent projects, uh, investigating social attitudes to not only beavers, other species as well. But the beaver, I guess, has been one of the key species in this. Um, and really trying to look into focus groups. So like we've mentioned, agricultural, but, you know, also kind of um, we looked at forestry, engaging with the forestry uh, uh, kind of sector, engaging with the fishing sector, you know, trying to bring as many people on board. I guess like a lot of these things, um, it's about how much people want to engage back. Mm -hmm. So I would say in some areas there still is opposition. 
Um, it's a licensed species. So even though it's back, you can't just go around and put it out anywhere. So every time there's a new project or you're putting beavers into a new catchment, um, you know, that in itself is about a lot of local engagement. And that can be reaching out on a local level, you know, the public meetings to doing kind of campaigns over the internet, things like that. But also when beavers are on the ground, a lot of our time and our work is really spent engaging with people, either those experiencing conflict or just, you know, education as well. You know, that goes a long way. Um, like I say, people don't, haven't lived alongside this species. They've probably heard various things about them. So even just having talk and making time to talk to people about what to expect and, you know, what's kind of realistic and what might be a bit more fanciful. So sometimes you were still speaking to people to try and convince them they're, they're not fish eaters, for example. Yeah. So all of that is about taking people on a journey. And then if people are experiencing conflict, it's really, well, to me, it's about listening and trying to find resolutions. But Again, the beaver is kind of one species in, a, I guess, a wider picture of what's going on. So, you know, like we've mentioned, land use changes in general can upset people. You know, this whole idea of, you know, maybe more sensitive farming, you know, I guess people are much more aware these days of mm -hmm. how some farming practices might be impacting on, on the wider climate, um, you know, our polluted rivers and things like that. So I think the beaver is a perfect species that's kind of opening up these broader conversations um, and a lot of it is a focus around the species but then when you take it wider it's like well people are upset about a whole range of things mm -hmm. and sometimes the beaver's stuck in the middle so again it's about open transparent conversations I think um, and we don't have all the answers and we don't win everyone over at all yeah. <laughs> but it's I think it's a direction of travel they're back and um, you know on the whole people are, are very keen to see them back. Well and I'm curious uh, I, I've been taking some uh programs in horticulture and land use ecology and stuff like that at a university here. And I am continually surprised by the amount of, for lack of a, a simple term, social sciences that end up going into restoration projects. As a biologist, yeah. mm -hmm. was that something, and it's very personal, but was that something you were prepared to do through your education and training? <laughs> or is that something that you kind of had to learn to do as you started focusing on restoration projects? That's a great question because I would say I'm an animal person through and through. Mm -hmm. It was always my passion, always what I wanted to do. And I find more and more I've ended up in this kind of weird juxtaposition of like, you know, I'm trying to do all the animal work, but a lot of my time is just spent um, with people. And I would say I'm not a natural kind of people conflict resolution at all, but I think the way I try to handle it is just to kind of, um, I would say be open, transparent, but also trying to um, just bring kind of the facts and realism and let people make up their own mind as well. So, you know, you're not preaching. Um, I don't, you know, no background in social science whatsoever. Yeah. But yeah, I think you find you spend a lot of your time doing that. Yeah, and you're also talking about, uh, you know, people have interest in cleaning water and understanding uh, the impacts of runoff from agriculture and stuff. When we then talk about beavers, we're talking about them in this context in an ecosystem service type of way or a value type of way. Is yeah. that something that you have found the public e or willing or able to pick up and carry with them the concept of the broader services as opposed to just you know, what we were all taught in grade school of the food web or food mm. chain, depending on mm. when you were taught. Um, mm -hmm. Are they able to take those larger systemic concepts with them? Or does that take a little more zhuzhing for another <laughs> zhuzhing, lack of yeah. a better word? 
<laughs> no, um, that again is a very interesting point. Um, when I first uh, got involved with Beavers about 15 years ago, I remember, you know, when we were saying about all the benefits, ecosystem services was one of the lists, you know, that we would just kind of roll out. Mm -hmm. And I think back then there wasn't a wide understanding. And, you know, I probably didn't, uh, you know, realize the true extent of it. Um of what ecosystem services even were. Um, so, you know, it was easy to focus on the biodiversity benefits and all that kind yeah. of stuff. I think now there's been a, a total shift, I think in the general public's kind of interest levels in, um, you know, climate change, uh, like you say, what's going into their rivers, what's going into their food production. I think people are becoming much more socially aware and questioning, um, you know, how our land is used. Um, and I think that is now a concept that's much more realized and, you know, you can have really good conversations with people and people get it. And I think once, you know, they go to a beaver wetland or, you know, see some of the changes they can bring, you know, people can see it and then visualize it and go, actually, yeah, you know, this is this is what it means to clean up a river. You know, I can see dirty water coming in and off the fields, going through several dams and clean water coming out the bottom. So people do get it. Um, again, you won't win everyone over. And sometimes, you know, we do have very difficult conversations with people that that look at, um, you know, the animal is very destructive mm -hmm. and, you know, it's felling trees. We're all told to plant trees. Why would you bring back an animal that, you know, is killing trees? These kind of conversations or, you know, if they're burrowing through things like flood banks or flood defences. I mean, that's a really hard concept to then stand and talk about mm -hmm. ecosystem services. But I think in the whole, it's definitely language that's been used more and more in a, in a public space. So I think people are getting it's easier to talk about well that's great to hear um i i think that's my fear when i try and write about things is how much of this do i have to explain yeah like if, if you're reading this from and i'm doing a lot of it online not face to face so i can't gauge reactions i can't exactly. engage with a person i'm just trying to guess the majority of readers will understand these concepts but then i may have to explain that concept or provide mm -hmm. a resource if they yeah. want to try and understand it yeah. better um... well, yeah i agree i agree it's still there i think what the challenge has been is i mean we can say oh they're good for ecosystems uh, services or they generate x y and z but i think the challenge has been um documenting that and proving yeah. that and almost putting it into numbers and that that's very hard to do yes. so i think you know there's still people that are highly skeptical and i think until we kind of um generate some of that data it's it's really hard to kind of um maybe be taken seriously or just like, oh, well, you would say that anyway. I think yeah. the exciting thing of what's happening at the minute, you know, there's some very good universities, uh, extra university who we work with uh, quite closely are one really brilliant example that are trying to make this whole ecosystem um, services concept and, you know, naturalization, flood, you know, restoration, um, sorry, floodplain restoration concepts more accessible. Um, and trying to put some figures on it and document it. And I, I I feel, again, I've seen a change in, especially the authority levels. So, you know, when you come with some nice hard science like that, they're they're really starting to listen. Um, now, that doesn't mean you know, it's going to be beavers everywhere and everything's fine. But I think there's definitely an argument building for having these and justifying these animals back, not purely on, well, it's a rest, it's a lost species. So ethically we should have it back or it's a cute mammal. Everyone loves it until maybe it turns up in their back garden. You know, these kind of arguments have become, I think a lot more serious uh, and taken more seriously. Um, so, yeah. 
That's very cool. And and speaking of the science, have you been able to publish anything yet? I mean, why, how long have we been doing this for? And has there been an opportunity to publish, perhaps, is the better way of phrasing that? Or is it in the process still a lot of data gathering? Um, let's say ADHD, it switches words in my head sometimes. It's really weird. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, Still in that process of a lot of data gathering, which, as you noted, for trying to measure something on an ecosystem level is you got to have everybody on board and you got to be looking in a big, wide area to try and measure this stuff. Yeah. Uh, so have you um, gotten there yet? Yeah, no, I, I think, I mean, we're in some parts where we're about 20 years down the line with beavers being present. Um, so there's been... I think a whole range of publications. Um, is there one killer paper that documents it all? Mm. No, but I mean, we we were starting from, and, and you know, me personally, a species that you know I had no concept of, never worked with. Um, you know, we hadn't done things like move them in any numbers or even cared for them in captivity. So my kind of personal passion research uh, objectives were more based around the animal itself. So, you know, looking at lots at the kind of welfare and captivity, um, you know, the veterinary care of the species. So from that kind of aspect, yeah, we started, uh, you know, there's lots now more existing publications on, on beaver veterinary care, which, mm -hmm. you know, was not, not a big concept before that. But um, like I say, this has been a journey and many people have kind of been on it in, at different areas. So, you know, you've got hydrologists, you know, specialists in 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 um lichens, dragonflies. Yeah. Over the store over these years, the pictures are building up. Um, and the vast majority of the publications are are positive and are you know easily accessible or explaining uh, concepts to people. I think a lot of this needs to be tied together. So, like you say, it's you know, it needs to be bigger scale and kind of win some of the other arguments. And there's still controversy with things like beavers and fish, you know, that yeah. we haven't got to the bottom of or, or kind of convinced everyone. But yeah, I would say the science is is what's driving it forward in certain sectors because, you know, it's now we can go to people and go, well, hang on, 10 years of monitoring has shown this. Um, and that's really powerful. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting uh, how much comes together, how quickly in that way. But at the same time, as you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's such a broad concept that it's going to take time to then tie it all together. Exactly. And what we did find, sorry, there was, I mean, there was a, such a wealth of, of um, you know, publications in Europe, you mm -hmm. know, so it, it was like, especially in the early days, we'd be like, oh, but in Poland, they find this and in Norway, they find this, you know, it's a no brainer. Um, but it rapidly became very evident that people were like, yes, yes, that's Europe. What about beavers in a British context? So almost the science, you know, got you know very narrowly focused into beavers in a British context, which I think is fine. It's part of the journey. Um, and you know, to be honest, it's saying a lot of similar things that the yeah. Europeans told us a long time ago. But you know, we had to go through that journey, and we still are going through that journey of what do beavers in Britain mean? Um, yeah, and that's a social journey, a scientific journey, and obviously the animals themselves. So, yeah. yeah, if it helps at all, we will go from town to town at times and hear, oh, well, our beavers are different, and it's 10 kilometers oh, right. down Brilliant. the road. It's like, okay. <laughs> uh, no, I can't and, cope with that. And, well, I, but at the same time, you also can't say, well, your experience is wrong, right? They've experienced no. what they've experienced. They just may not have yeah. the context to place that in. Yeah, um, Absolutely. And that's what I found uh, also then interesting, looking at the restoring beavers to regenerate our landscape. So on the website for Beaver Trust under admission, you've got this great big graphic that shows the process in a very broad way um, from translocate beavers into the favorable sites all the way around. So from that point, restore, communicate and educate, influence. 
and it's a never-ending cycle in a sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's also, you know, these are not short-term necessarily things. Yeah. There's a lot of short-term issues that need to be resolved and confronted. But this is a very, very long-term process. Uh, I like thinking about um, uh, where I live in Hamilton. Uh, we're on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee uh, Iroquois people. And they had a seventh-generation principle, which was that every decision we make, we have to... Uh, sorry, the philosophy that every decision we make, we have to measure the impact seven generations into the future. So right, is this well, going to be yeah. sustainable for seven generations? Are we doing harm to yeah. seven generations? Yeah. Um, and I feel like that concept is kind of at play here. And it's one of the beautiful ways that traditional ecological knowledge of indigenous people tie into modern science um, mm. is that same concept of this isn't going to just happen and then be done. Is It's a long, drawn-out process. Yeah. What is the long-term goal? What is the the ultimate vision mm -hmm. Um, for Beaver Trust after all of this has has been done for years and years and years? Um, well, I, I think to this, this start with that, I think it's clear, it's a recognition that, uh, you know, there's a responsibility when you're bringing back a species, you know, I'm not going to point to other projects. Some projects is a bit, you know, of the glory, isn't it? It's like, oh, we brought it back, right, job done. Yeah. Um, and walk away. So you get the kind of the kudos of that. I think it's this is a recognition that, this, like I say, is a landscape changing animal. Um, it's not a matter of, you know, we just put a couple out and job done. It's, you know, there's so many kind of, you know, milestones in that, isn't it? It's about, you know, creating a self-generating healthy population. It's about, you know, taking people on 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 a journey. It's not about kind of getting up and leaving people um, when they might need the help the most. So for me, you know, to have a few beavers on the landscape, might be fine and they might bother nobody what happens like you say 10 20 years down the line when there's a lot more beavers and then potentially the conflicts kick in so have we you know done a good job have we restored a species or we brought it back and then it starts causing potential kind of havoc halfway down the line and that's when you need to capture people again isn't it because yeah. you could lose all the support you know when they're fine and they're you know not impacting on any, anyone but you see this and again the europeans were very clear to us there'll be this kind of, you know, the, the, almost the glory early days where, you know, people are happy, it's cute, it's all, everyone's singing each other's praises. And then, you know, as beavers build up in the landscape, when they start moving into areas that are potentially less, less well-suited, you know, and, and you know, causing more conflict just by density and, and spreading, you know, that's when you can have, you know, people that were on board going, oh, hang on a minute, these animals are awful, <laughs> you know, because they've come into my backyard yeah. and, and impacted on me. So if you lose people at that point, and you know the kind of tide of public opinion turns against that species and you know, you're undoing a lot of hard work um and for what and you can't you know to me you have to be socially responsible as well and and be there for the long term so what does it look like um i think success to me looks like beavers restored pretty much in all our catchments um a, a well resourced management program or mitigation program that is accessible to all and that people have support if they cause conflict um, and that was, you know, when I say cause conflict, these are very localized 
uh, you know, sources of conflict, but it's very personal to that individual landowner or person that's being affected. I think it's it's ultimately is people living alongside beavers and then being normalized, yeah, and not you know still being this uh, new species that someone else dumped on them. It's you know that beavers are a normal thing. It's just part of our native wildlife, and not that we don't give them a second thought, but it's it's they're just there and they're part of it. And we accept them like we do other species, and that to me is is what long term success would look like and again that might not mean that we're putting beavers out all the time or all the kind of stuff i love to do but it might mean you know again education support mitigation mm -hmm. um you know awareness raising that kind of thing and to me that's what the beaver trust role could change more into and focus you know more solely on that yeah in time. evolve alongside the ecosystem that you're regenerating yeah. um yeah and one of the, uh, speaking of uh, uh, conflict points and things like that, uh, website has a great little section, it's a paragraph that I, I quite enjoy about beavers and buffers. So the concept yes. of uh, riparian landscapes or, or lands which are water or the land around water, sorry, the ecosystems around waters, mm. um, and how if majority of, I think it was 90, in Bavaria over 90% of beaver conflicts occur within 10 meters of the water, while 95% occur within 20 meters of water. So that's pretty close. And that goes mm -hmm. in a lot too with the, the concerns about trees coming down and things like that. Yeah. And I'm very excited by the solution to that. Uh, but I thought, mm -hmm. could you share a bit about that? So this is something that comes up all the time in urban areas, rural areas in North America is beavers ate the trees or they're doing this. We need to get rid of the beavers to protect the trees. Yeah, uh, yeah. How does that then sort of play out according to this concept? Well, I think, again, we're trying to encourage people to think about, you know, their, their landscapes and, you know, riparian habitats more holistically. And it's, you know, it's not just trees, water, it's, you know, there's a whole, like you say, interface there. So it's, you know, our, a lot of our waterways, unfortunately, are, you know, to me, they're quite barren. You know, you've got a few mature trees, you've got, you know, manicured grass landscapes. And, you know, if we look back, it's like, this is not what woodland looks like. And I think a lot of people have this misconception of, of what kind of natural woodland is, you know, it is trees falling over. It is, you know, all different plants and range of species in there. It is trees of different shapes and sizes. So I think it's about trying to restore, you know, not just the species, but also the habitat the species should be in. And, you know, I guess what we're trying to say, one of the easiest solutions to reduce beaver conflict is to let our banks renaturalize. Now that might be planting trees. It might just let it scrub over. That in itself, you know, it does, we know the species stays very close to the waterline. So if we provide it with more food in there, you know, not only will it kind of reduce beaver conflicts, but, you know, all these other kind of concerns we're thinking about, you know, like agricultural runoff, you know, runoff from the roads and um, other, again, wildlife as well that has, you know, the, the homes are lacking that this naturalized system um, could really not only benefit beaver mitigation and management, but also, you know, have a whole host of knock-on effects, but also, you know, ultimately just asking people to look at their landscapes and and how they're used and um, think about them differently as well. Yeah, it's it's a big That's challenge. Not to say if they want to protect a tree, they can protect a tree, but oh, yeah. so how many how many trees are we going to protect and maybe if that tree falls over and you're left with a big empty space, then to me, you know, what was your plan? You know, where was the regeneration mm -hmm. of trees um, anyway? So uh, it's hopefully trying to ask people to look at things a bit differently. I have found it's required a shift in 
perception for myself in conversations about this, whether it's for, for research stuff or, or an interview like this. And it's very much, again, thinking of, uh, but more or less what you just said, it's okay, well, this isn't forever. This, is, this mm -hmm. isn't static. None of this is static. It's all constantly changing. And the best we can do is guide how that change happens. Um, mm -hmm. And I think you raised that great point then of, okay, well, that tree wasn't gonna live forever. It could have been hit by lightning. It could have just gotten rot. There's a thousand different pests that could have gotten to it. Um, what were you gonna do when it came down anyway? Um, yeah, and yeah. again, for me, that's that's the exciting time is, okay, well, what are we gonna grow now? I, I love growing yeah. things. I think it's incredible to watch happen. So yeah, if a, you know, a bunny comes by and eats a bunch of my plants, it's an excuse to go to the greenhouse <laughs> and nursery. But it's also then, okay, well, how am I planting? Am I planting in yeah, a way yeah. that encourages exactly. the bunny to come over or am I planting in a way that allows the bunny to be a bunny and my, so, you know, I have raised beds for my veggies. Problem <laughs> resolved. The squirrels now, the squirrels are a different issue, but. <laughs> yeah. uh, They're relentless. Yeah. I, I think I, it's also, you know, we're trying to explain to people, you know, a beaver fell tree doesn't equal tree death as well, oh, yeah. you know, and I think people are horrified, you know, when, and you know, it, it can be sad when big mature trees go down. But yeah, you know, he had it on the head. It's like, you know, trees do die mm -hmm. um, or, you know, they regenerate. And it's this dynamic process, which is, you know, really good for biodiversity. And I guess we've we've all got shifting baselines of, of, of how our rivers should look or used to look. You know, I think people are just forgetting that rivers are messy, uh, yep. ponds are messy, and this is good for nature. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny when you look at the history of landscape uh, design and stuff and you start looking at um, uh, post-industrial revolution getting into the naturalized views. But even those mm -hmm. in the, the formal gardens was very meticulously set up. So if there yeah. was a fallen yeah. tree, it was a fallen tree brought in from somewhere <laughs> and laid out with the exact angle to, for the most aesthetic. Come it. on, yeah. Good effort, team. Good effort. Kind of missed the point. Um, mm. And talking about tree wrapping, though, so what is your success rate or what, what is your, um, not success rate, I guess, but what has your experience been tree wrapping and everything as a mitigation measure? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to brag, but I think quite good. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> um, Again, it's it's a technique we you know we've looked at manuals from America uh, and Europe and but it's something you do. The more you do it, the more you kind of refine it. Um, so if we're you ask people to be selective as well, but you know if there really is important trees and people are allowed their favorite tree, that's mm -hmm. no problem. Um, we're using mesh guards. Um, you know, and we've played it around a lot with you know specs of that. So that to me works quite well. You do have to keep on top of it. You know, check it every once in a while and maybe move it around so i think that's quite easy um that's one of the easier mitigations of all of them i think but again to me i'm starting to question myself now is like i could say well how many trees do we protect and and just because we can protect them should we always be protecting them so this is a more kind of debate i'm having with myself but i think tree wrapping if it's done well with the right specs is is a good long term and i think accessible and and cheap solution like Excellent. would you do it on mass maybe not but it's you know, yeah being selected and i think if you're looking at doing it on mass you then need to go back to question one of why it, what what are why? we trying to achieve and what are we trying to protect prevent restore whatever and yeah. is you know it's again it's that how is this affecting everything else 
if we mm -hmm. let these four trees become part of the ecosystem in a new way, will it allow for a new growth? And will it allow for, you know, a change? Maybe it'll help develop a meadow because the sunlight will, like there's so many weird exactly. little things that can happen when you remove something. Exactly. Uh, yeah. or allow so we've it. been much more sorry um yeah much more excited recently about you know looking at riparian planting schemes you know because people will, will do it and now beavers are in the mix um but you know trying to speak to you know like forestry um managers and advisors and things like that it's like well just like what you said let's look at what species you're putting in there let's look at the density you know do we have or could we have um almost like a willow layer mm. uh like you know, I don't want to call it sacrificial area, but you know what I mean. You know, <laughs> yes, we love planting. The Judas trees. I won't say, <laughs> yeah, you know, tempting to put these first and see and see what happens. But you know, it's not to say oh they won't come up and and eat any of the you know other trees behind. But you know, if if we're planting in a way that allows for beaver foraging as well, I think that over a long term is not not you know, much more sustainable, but also, you know, provides, like you say, all these interesting kind of habitats and, and room for, for dynamic changes. But I think it also, it's a message, isn't it? It's like, we can't exclude beavers or you could go and spend a lot of time and money on fences and trying to exclude beavers, but why not have the, you know, other biodiversity benefits of maybe trying to include them in your riparian design mm -hmm. and yeah, play about with tree densities and uh, species. Now you can imagine some people think that's absolutely bonkers and you're just planting more beaver food. Mm -hmm. But you know, it is, I think it's it's definitely a concept that we're trying to push more now. Um, and I would say, yeah, in the, in the earlier days, like I say, we were running around wrapping trees like mad because it was a quick fix and it worked. Yeah. Um, now we're just thinking a lot more about what advice we're giving out. Excellent. Uh, and I also want to ask about flow devices. Um, oh yeah. So this is something that the Fur Bears uh, does a lot of uh, advocacy for. We have a scholarship to the Beaver Institute where we try and help people learn how to build these devices, uh, as well as learn about hydrology, beaver biology, and all of the other uh, elements of it. And we're always per pushing municipalities to learn these skills as well. Um, what has uh, your experience with flow devices been? Yeah, well, I actually went out to America years ago and worked with a couple of your colleagues um, to put in flow devices oh, and, cool. and learn more about them. Yeah, so uh, we we have put in, I guess, uh, not to the same extent, but we have put in a few. I think we bought into more um, different, I guess, uh, permissions than you guys do. And mm -hmm. I think it's just very different landscapes. So they've worked very well um, in certain circumstances. Um, Will they be as widely used? I'm not so sure. There's a there's a bit of controversy about do they then stop fish passage? Yeah. And and so these this is the stage we're at. We're at the early days of trying to really get people to accept them as as a mitigation tool. And obviously only under use uh, in the right circumstances. It, what we find in very, very flat agricultural landscapes with low gradient, we just don't even put them in because you know, the, we've, you put one in and then the beaver goes, well, thanks very much. I'm putting the dam in 10 meters down, down, yeah. down stream. So we've just kind of totally excluded them from places like that. But, you know, in systems with a bit of gradient, especially in towns, um, you know, where people are, are kind of 
um well people are in the mix and you know they obviously don't want to see beavers removed or but they don't want their gardens flooded so it's places like this i think they can have a much more widespread use and a more successful use i think there's a general nervousness sometimes and that is a kind of cultural history of putting anything in the water course because yep. people see it as a blockage and you know then the risk factor if you know you have conversations around well what if it slips what if it goes and blocks somewhere else so so I guess these are the stages we're at trying to have these conversations and really kind of demonstrate them that they can work well um, in certain circumstances. Yeah, and the more it gets done, the more information we get. Exactly. And I think the fish questions are very important questions. Uh, the website knows there are fish-friendly flow devices uh, that have been trialed in the U.S. We've heard about some of them being used up here. Um, I've mm. also seen them designed to have turtle passages and things like yes, that. Yes, I've seen the turtle passages, uh, yeah. which was fun. Not to something watch. we have to worry about here, but um, yeah. that was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I think too, we also see the need a lot in culverts here. So our municipal yeah. Uh, yeah. sewage systems are designed to funnel water very specifically into culverts, and mm -hmm. then beavers go, "Hey, great, that's a perfect spot because of the running <laughs> water." Um, and yeah. when you put in a properly built flow device that can last a decade, yeah, okay, yeah, beaver moves on, yeah. we move on, and you just have to go by yeah. every now and then and make sure it's all right, uh, which is a lot. Yeah, more no, I hundred percent agree. Yeah, yeah, a lot more cost efficient, and I think this is we've been really looking at you guys and just saying, look, this we know this works, we know this is yeah. um, you know, it's 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 wide, much more widespread in North America, so I think to get over the kind of nervousness of it, you know, we'd love to show that more and demonstrate and just have a more, again, it's quite normalizing it, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 It's, it's interesting. It, it keeps coming back to, um, to people. And it, yeah. isn't that just, you know, as you note, as a biologist, it's sort of a, uh, yeah. it's gotta be a funny talking to your younger self and saying, so great job with all of the animal stuff. You're going to be <laughs> yeah, mostly dealing with people now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I would have said absolutely no way. I'm yeah. sticking to the animal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess the question to, to wrap with is how are people able to support this kind of work? Because I think that's something folks forget is this work doesn't just happen. It takes a lot of dedicated individuals like yourself. The organization has a board of directors and funding partners yeah. and all kinds of other elements go into it oh, yeah. so yeah. the work can happen. So what are yeah. ways folks in the UK and Northern Ireland or the rest of the world can get behind Beaver Trust in this project? Yeah, I mean, I think it's about, well, I guess, helping us to disseminate information about this species, first and foremost. Um, I think it's about sharing experiences. Um, you know, if people are living alongside, again, it's normalizing the process. So let's have more talk and communication um, about that and hear different experiences and hear what's working and what's not working. I'm also always interested in, in hearing people's fears. And if there's ways, you know, we can open this up to a broader audience and kind of reassure people as well. Yeah. It's, you know, it's not just us one organization in Britain saying this. There's a whole world and wealth of experience as well. Um, so yeah, to me, that's that's really important. I mean, fundamentally, we're a charity, so we're always always looking for support. Um, but also, you know, do look at some of our projects. Um, we work up and down the country. So if there's things local to you, or if you are interested in beaver projects, um, please do get in contact. You know, there's more wild releases happening in, in Scotland. 
In England, there's a de slightly different situation where, you know, wild releases aren't allowed yet, but that's mm -hmm. something we're working towards. And again, if people are passionate about this, you know, please uh, do write to your MPs, do write to your politicians, do put pressure on the authorities to say, look, this is a species that we want back. And, um, you know, just really send that message. Because I think it's often easier to hear the more negative, cautious voices in this mm -hmm. picture. And sometimes those people shout very loudly. And I'm not saying it's going to be problem free. But if you're having positive experiences or just want to support the species, then do be vocal about it. I'd like to thank Dr. Campbell Palmer for her time and encourage everyone to check out the incredible work Beaver Trust is doing. If you'd like to learn more, you can find them online at beavertrust.org or by following the links in this week's show notes. You can follow the Fur Bears for more updates on podcast episodes, campaign details, and how you can make a difference for wildlife in your community. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at FurBears and on Facebook under Fur Free. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong. <laughs>